Hello, humans. Maybe this is a good thing. Maybe the program has been so close to being perfect, except for those damn annoying, pesky introductions by that loud mouth, long winded, horrible, horrible host who needs to uh, keep quiet more. Well, this conversation went really long, and rather than cut out another five minutes out of it, which I've tried to shave everything that's non essential, this is the conversation I want to air. So I'm just going to keep this introduction short and sweet. Love doesn't need an introduction. Scott Stabile might, if you're not familiar, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to him. He's the author of four books. The one I've read the most of and the one I have enjoyed the most so far is Big Love. And it is beautiful. If you love the conversation, I highly recommend getting it because I thought I could read it before the interview. And when I sat down to read it, it was just too soulful, too dense, too full of beautiful message for me to really get through it. it. It is not a skimmable book, but it's an enjoyable read. So here is my guest, Scott Stabile, and this is the interview that almost didn't happen. It was very serendipitous, and I'm so glad it did. My new friend and teacher, and I thought I had a third word for that, but I don't. So here's the conversation. I'm calling it Living with Love. Scott. Thank you for hosting me in the place you're staying. And I just wanted to start with thanking you for the nudge that made this this interview happen. And the reason I want to highlight it is because I think it is such an important skill for people out there who are battling for their careers, battling for their artistry to because that's part of it. You don't just get to make beautiful art all day. You have to find places for yourself. And we had corresponded. Right. Right. And you had no way of knowing that in May, I basically I had been unmedicated for a large chunk of the year and had been pushing the needle really well, actually, with diet and exercise. And but for whatever reason, it caught up with me. And I think there was some outside circumstances. So you had no way of knowing that I had basically gone dark. And so you had sent a follow up email like, hey, here's the dates. I'm going to be in the area. And I hadn't responded. And yesterday, you sent an email that just said, hey, you know, I don't want to force this or to push this. But I think, you know, essentially, I think I'm the guy for your for your program. And I saw that email. And that w- I still haven't totally cleared out the mess of taking a month off. But I saw that email and I was so grateful for it. And I just wanted to really quickly or, or just ask you about what how do you navigate through that situation that's awkward you never know what the person on the other side's going through absolutely yeah, yeah. i mean a couple things one i had no idea what was going on for you obviously and part of me sensed that maybe something was going on because we had corresponded and then I didn't hear from you. But the other part of me, the insecure part is like, he's not really that interested anymore. You know what I mean? Like he found better guests. And so for me, I'm trying to balance in my life. Well, I don't even know if I'm trying to balance it. I'm trying to look at the ways in which I'm trying to force things so that I don't do that anymore. Like I don't put my energy into forcing something that doesn't really feel like it's necessarily flowing. But at the same time, there's the need as an artist, as you said, to like make noise for yourself, Yeah, you know, and to keep presenting yourself and keep showing up. And I mean, the worst case 
in this would just be that I was never a guest on your show. Do you know what I mean? Which is, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't be the end of my world. It yeah. would be okay. It'd be disappointing, but okay. But mostly I wasn't going to write you again. I, but I gave, I was at the Indie Alley the night before I wrote you and they started talking about you out of the blue saying to me, our friend Sam's podcast, you have to be on it. And I took that as, and I had no idea they were talking about you at first. And I'm like, sure, you know, tell, they're like, you have to meet him while you're in town. And I'm like, okay, I'm open to it. I can try to make that happen. And they're like, he's got this podcast, you know, how to human. And wait, did I just say your podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How to human. And I'm like, okay, this is a sign. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like follow this path and reach out again. And this doesn't feel like you're forcing it. This, like this choice didn't feel like I'm trying to make something happen that's not. It felt like I was, I was like paying attention to the life around me, you know, and being assertive within it. Yeah. Well, you, it was beautifully done. Thank the, you. the follow up email was so gracious. I felt so just not shame, you know, because I'm, I'm currently trying to not let shame be either a motivating factor. Yeah. Or a teacher, like I don't consider it a valid teacher anymore. Yeah, I used to. I used to like really look at it, but then what happens is I would catch myself being ashamed of the shame, and I can also get myself out of bed with shame or in fear and guilt. You know, get up. You need. You're not doing enough. You need to go. Go. You you know. You you're, you're being lazy. All that kind of talk can get me out of bed. The problem is it can't get me out of bed sustainably. Yeah. And so it's just a, a fire waiting to happen. Yeah. And here's the deal. You know, I'm a Virgo. And I say that jokingly. I don't put too much stock in that. But I generally love to pour over the guest and to read everything you've written and see the movie that you wrote. And I'm flying a little bit blind. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've winged a few of them, but I read Dig. I read a couple select mm-hmm. chapters and I realized I am in over my depth because what you've or in over my head because what you've written is not something you can successfully skim through. Mm -hmm. It's just too, it's too deep and it's too, it's dense what's in there. So I am going to just ask for you to make sure that we get you on this program. Sure. We get all of you. Yeah. And to lead me when, when I'm not able to successfully lead to telling your story. Absolutely. Thank you for, thank you for doing, stepping outside of your comfort zone, truly, to make this happen without being Virgo prepared. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It took, it it took a few little centering moments, but this can be as big or as small as a question, but I always start this way. Scott, who are you? Yeah. And I know you always start that way and I didn't give it thought. You know, I would say who I am right now, one of the things I am is someone who makes a lot of noise for love. Like, I think that is, if I had to define myself in some way, it would be as someone who believes deeply in the power of love to create really positive, important change and to heal. And when I feel most grounded in who I am, it's when I'm not only operating from that place, which happens a lot, but also doesn't happen a lot, but it's when I'm remembering to generate enthusiasm about the power of love in my life and in other people and reminding people like that they're worthy, you know, and they don't have to do a fucking thing to be any more worthy than they are in this moment right now. And just to see people that way. So that's, I mean, from a, from a like broader, who am I in the work that I'm doing in the world? That's who I feel I am. 
how I'm doing that. I'm doing it through writing, which I like writing a lot. It doesn't, I, I'm, this is way more exciting for me being sitting with people and talking about this shit and getting into the depths of like what it means to be human and struggle and love and all of these things. Like that's what excites me the most connection with people. So I think I'm all, yeah, I'm a, I'm a connector. I'm a lover. You know, I think that's, that's who I am right now. Yeah. A teacher as well. A teacher. Yeah. You have a giant community of people that you've brought into this movement that I think you're a part of and that other people are a part of. And it's really about, you know, living with this openness and vulnerability and love. I would love to start with, with how you got here uh, and for you to talk about how you decided this is something I want to spend. We all have a very short amount of time here. Yeah. And we all have to decide if you want to have contentment, which I think is more important than happiness. Yeah. You have to decide what you're going to do with your time. Yeah. On some level. And how did you decide that this was what you wanted to spend your life and spend your time doing? How'd you get here? Well, the first thing I'd say to that is just one, it's, it feels good to love. So I don't feel like I'm somebody who's this selfless Buddha type at all. You know, I'm somebody who pays attention more than ever to how I'm feeling. And when I'm operating from a loving place, I feel good. So that's what excites me to be doing this work. As far as how I got here in terms of the community and stuff, I was in San Francisco in the early 90s. I, I graduated college in 93 in Michigan, went right to San Francisco a year after, got a job in a like a new age world gift store there. It was called Planet Weaver's Treasure Store. It was on Haight Street and it was a haven off of Haight Street. You know, it was you walk in and it smelled really good and drums were playing and it was this whole beautiful scene. So I got a job there and they had a really great book section. And these were all these metaphysical new age books. And they were talking about, I had never even heard the term enlightenment. You know, that was so <laughs> far removed from my consciousness, honestly. But I was working alongside people who kept talking about love is their main goal in life and being more peaceful. And it wasn't about becoming a lawyer and whatever else that I, I went to school with, you know, that was the goal, like your career trajectory. So I started reading these books and hanging out with these people. And I started to realize like, I don't have to, my goals don't have to be built around what I'm doing for work, even though that's been a slog to actually get to the, like to get beyond that. But um, it can be built around how I'm showing up in my life, you know? And so that's really what sparked, I would say in my early twenties, this notion that love is the answer. That if I'm operating outside of love, I'm in my head, I'm in my ego and that's okay and that's human. But when I'm most peaceful, it's when I'm in my heart, right? And then I, and then I entered a cult. So that was, okay. <laughs> so, so that, I mean, and that's true. I mean, and I was in a cult for 13 years in the Bay Area in Marin, where we are right now, and had a guru for that time. And the cult was, I mean, essentially the message was enlightenment. My guru professed himself to be an enlightened master who was going to get us prepared to achieve our own enlightenment. And it was all built around love, right? So okay. that was the message. On so, brand. Yeah, it was totally on brand. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And I was into it. I mean, because really what we what was being communicated to us over and over and over was just love, 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 love. So everything I had been kind of discovering in the store 
was what was growing even deeper in this community. Now I was seeing lots of, I could, we could talk for hours and maybe we will someday on our own about the cult. But I mean, what I will say about it is what I was, I had to work really hard to believe that my guru was enlightened because what I was seeing in his actions felt to me like not what I imagined enlightenment to be. And how I sold myself on it was I was continuously reminding myself like, Scott, you are not enlightened, so you don't know what enlightenment looks like or really feels like. So even if his actions seem cruel or crazy or whatever, trust in his enlightenment, right? So, and then I'm surrounded by people who are trusting in his enlightenment. And it ended up, I mean, I don't believe this was an enlightened teacher, essentially. And when I left his life, he instructed all of the people in my life to delete me from their lives. I've seen that happen. Yeah. So it was an incredibly traumatic experience, you know, overnight to lose my closest, the closest people in my life. Your foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Without even a, I mean, the only text I got from any of them was from my closest, closest friend who said, you know, don't ever contact me again. So your question was, how did I get here? So all that played into what I- Can I pause you there? Please, yeah. People want to know. I am championing for the people. (laughs) When you say cult, you are obviously implying that it had an element of unhealth to it, you know, unhealthiness to it. And I would love for you to talk about the specifics of that if you're willing to. Yeah, sure. Because there's other people caught in the spiral or the weird confusion that comes from getting caught up in a life situation that's unhealthy that I would love to highlight. Absolutely. You know, I I say, so I think when people hear the word cult, they think of Jim Jones or they think of the Manson, you know, they think of these cults that are, that, that have like murder and craziness going on. And this wasn't a cult like that at all. It was a cult because there was one leader and, and built into the idea of being his student was that he, what he says is true, no matter how you feel or how you think. So the whole notion of free thought is kind of taken from you, which is why I believe it to be a cult. Because I think that's the essence of a cult is if you're without free thought and a free way of being and thinking. I mean, and you could say like, I was still making the choices. So I did have my freedom in it, but he professed himself to be a puppet of God. And so the what we were being, what was communicated to us is that if we are objecting to what he's saying, we're objecting to God and we're objecting to our relationship with God and we're objecting to the potential for enlightenment in our lives. So it's a very heavy message to, so anything he says is, is gold. Mm-hmm. He is never wrong. We believed we were walking among a Jesus or Buddha. Truly yeah. that level, like it's funny to hear my, even to hear myself talk about it because I think it's, I don't imagine myself as somebody who would get sucked into a cult, honestly. I don't think many people do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, until you're sucked into it. But I would say that one of the, the great lessons I learned from it and from walking away from it is that we get to choose the teachers that we bring into our lives. And a lot of times what happens, you know, you might, maybe you grow up in a, a religious environment and and so your religion is being put upon you from a young age and you grow up to believe that this is the way everything is however you're growing up you're being conditioned to believe one thing or another and what i learned from the cult is is after years of trying to convince myself that he was enlightened and finally accepting i don't believe in his enlightenment which means everything that's happening here is rooted in a lie yeah you know what i mean Mm. and it's that i can choose differently 
no matter how many people in my life who are the most important people in my life, no matter how they're viewing this man, it doesn't mean that I have to view this man the same. And it doesn't even matter that for 10 or 12 or 13 years, I believed in him. If what I'm believing now is no longer that, I can make a different choice. And I think that's the great value in the lesson is it's, it's we move through our lives believing certain things and being surrounded by people who believe these certain th things so we feel pressured to believe them. And when we really start to check in with ourselves and ask ourselves like, is this really me? Who am I? You know, that's your first question, who are you? And that's for me like, it's, it's such an important question in the, the path to growth into healing is, is not only getting clear about who we are, but getting clear about who we are not. Mm -hmm. And having the courage within that clarity to move forward and say, I am no longer this, or to say, I was never this, and I'm not gonna act in alignment, or to say, I was this for 10 years and I am no longer this, and I'm gonna move forward as I am now. And that was one of the great gifts for me of finally summoning the courage to say goodbye to him because it took me a good year to finally say, I no longer want to be your student. From when you decided something's off to when you From left. when I was clear, I no longer wanted to be. Wow. I, yeah. yeah. It took me a year because I was terrified of two things. I was terrified that I was going to lose my community of friends, which I did. And I was terrified, and this sounds so crazy to hear, right? I was terrified that I was going to be punished by God because that was the communication that we were given all the time. If you betray your guru, you will be punished by God. Mm. And... I internalized that. And I internalized it as someone who is, didn't even really know what I think about God. Do you know what I mean? Didn't even know if I believed in God and yet I was terrified of being punished by God. So I finally was just like, I am going to be true to myself and being true to myself is not this path. He's either delusional or a liar or some combination of both. And I also said, maybe he even is enlightened. You and, and Sam, the crazy thing is I can say all this to you as I'm saying it, and there's still 3% of my mind that is like, maybe he really was enlightened, you know, and everything he said is true. And you just were not able to receive his enlightenment. Yeah. Anyone that's been through a breakup knows that 3%. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, oh, this, maybe that was the wrong decision. Yeah. Uh, there, yeah. There's a couple of things I've picked up uh, along this journey, talking to people that really came up when you were speaking and one of them is that truth is, I mean, I've had truth as a stand-in for a higher power mm -hmm. at various points in my life, just what is true, and, and it, you feel it, mm -hmm. you know. And I think one of the most nefarious things humans can do to other humans is to convince them that their intuition is wrong. Yeah. Because here's the thing, your intuition will be wrong, and it's still not cause for you not to trust your intuition. Yeah. And so I would rather trust my intuition and make a mistake than live a life of not trusting my intuition and me regaining that trust with myself, with my you know creative eye, with my kind of action mind of what should I do next is one of the big journeys. Yeah. Another one that came up and it sounds like you, you had your own holistic way to come into this is Jack Cornfield can you really sold me on the idea that I've always been somebody that wants to change and wants to improve and wants to grow and seek, I would never use the word enlightenment, but wants to seek a higher level of mm -hmm. myself. And that change is not becoming something that you aren't. Like it's not Sam becoming a super Sam. It's actually Sam removing 
the bat, the stuff that I've added along the way and becoming more of who I truly am. Totally. And that can be for even the most superficial things is how I like to visualize it because it's been that powerful for me is if I want to be a more organized person, the disorganized human that I am today is like the reason I want I'm gravitated towards that is because my deepest soul is an organized person. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, I've added these uh, this code of disorganization for whatever the payoff is or whatever it is. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's so true. I don't want to rehash old wounds, but I do want to use the the cards you've been dealt to help as other people going through it. And that's really what this program is about is, you know, that kind of me too factor. Yeah. Because we all, I think, especially those of us who have had some real events, have real traumatic events happen in our life, we all have this uh, pull towards becoming what I would call uh, crippling uniqueness. Mm-hmm. I must be the only one, you know? Yeah. And so could you talk about some of the, the events um, you can start as early as you want. I would love for you to cover about your parents, but yeah, the events that shaped you into who you were and kind of set you on a path of needing healing. Yeah. So I lost my parents when I was 14. They were murdered. They were shot to death in Detroit in a, um, a fruit market that they owned, which is obviously an incredibly heavy, difficult thing to experience. I'm the young, I should say also, I'm the youngest of seven kids, six living. So I had, a, I had my siblings with me as well to deal with this. But dealing with the death of my parents was something that when I was a teenager, I did it by just completely locking it away. And I can't honestly say that I brought any consciousness to my response to their death at 14. You know, some part of me knew, don't deal with this right now. (laughs) That's what it felt like. It Mm -hmm. was just like, I would cry once a year, like clockwork, and really only once a year after the initial few months of losing them and lots of tears. So I just buried it and I created a big secret around it. I was really ashamed of being an orphan and not just being an orphan, but being an orphan to parents who were murdered. It felt so, I was going to use the word extravagant, which isn't the right word, but just so over the top. And I knew from experience with a few people that even to mention it to people, they had absolutely no idea how to process what you're telling them if you tell them your parents are dead and that they were murdered. So I became like a master chess player. With yourself. W- with people. Yeah. I If any conversation, because I, tra- I, I moved in with my eldest sister and her husband and son. This was in ninth grade. Um, so I moved to a new high school. So I was meeting all these new people. And obviously people want to know about your family. So any conversations that would start steering toward family, I would manipulate away completely to prevent any question of what are your parents like or anything about parents. So because I didn't, I couldn't handle the pity that I would experience from people. It felt so heavy. I couldn't handle their overwhelm. You know, I was still processing it as a 14 year old. So I made it a secret. I was also, I should say, dealing with the secret of my sexuality. Mm-hmm. So that was another really big secret. At that at that young, you knew? Oh, for sure. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. for sure. Well, I should say I didn't, I wasn't willing to acknowledge that I was gay at that young, but I knew that I was having sexual attraction to boys for sure. So I was just doing my best to 
minimalize them and pretend that it wasn't really happening. And even though I'm masturbating about guys, you know, switch it right at the last moment to Phoebe Cates, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And try to tell myself that, you know, I'm still more attracted to girls. This isn't, this is just a phase. This isn't anything to worry about. So with my parents, I feel like through my teenage years, it was just something I didn't really acknowledge. I mean, eventually friends came to, they'd come over and I'm living with my sister and the, and the close friends, you know, they would find out and I would just hope that they would tell other people. So I didn't have to do it. Yeah. It, that's like coming out too. When I came out to my sisters, it was, that was later in my twenties. It was just like, I hope they tell everybody, <laughs> you know, I hope I can come coming out to them can be like coming out to everybody. And I don't have to have these conversations over and over and over again. So with my parents, it wasn't really until my twenties when I got that job at that store and started reading these books, I started to notice that the wall that I had built around my parents and their death was really impacting the relationships that I was creating in my life and the depth of connection that I could have with people. Because it could only go so far. It could only go so far. I'm only showing up so much. Not to mention sexuality. I mean, these things were really running parallel in my early 20s because that's when I started to come out. But I also started to come out more as an orphan, you know, and I also started to grieve differently. I hadn't really... Look, I don't believe there are rules about grieving and Neither. I don't believe there's closure to grieving. I think that it's, I don't think anything gets wrapped up with a bow when it comes to, to grief. But I also was able to see I hadn't allowed myself to really grieve my parents. Once a year crying was not enough. I hadn't allowed myself to rage. I hadn't allowed myself to really cry. I hadn't allowed myself to feel essentially. So it was in my 20s that that was starting to happen. And it took actually that once a year cry was going on for a few days in my early 20s and I was in my bedroom crying and crying and thinking I'm losing my mind you know like I it's something uh, the flip switched like all this stuff I'd been burying the flip switched and I don't know what to do about it so I I grabbed a, a yellow pages which still existed in the early 90s and literally po like pointed to a therapist <laughs> It, it literally and and called this woman and I could afford six sessions at that time. So I saw her for six weeks that's the, and she, and we talked about my parents and I cried and I raged. And I think some part of me was able to see, you can talk about this and survive it. You can cry about it. You can scream about it and you can still survive it. You know, and it was like through those six weeks with her, it set me on that different trajectory of realizing it's like, feel feel what you're feeling, quit with the burying. And that's essentially what that chapter dig is about. I mean, it's, it's, I have gratitude toward the young part of me that somehow knew to bury it because I think it may have crushed me. And I'm so grateful that in my early twenties, I, I stopped, I started to dig it up and feel it. Yeah. I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. And it's like, I could easily wish I had done things differently in my teen years when I was destroying myself through addiction. And I think it was really happening kind of on the universe's time, you know, and I, I you know, I find myself, I'm a slow healer. So I find myself kind of at that, that inappropriate place where people kind of want you to be over stuff. Yeah, you know, and they kind of want you to be over that heartbreak, and you're just not. You're just not. You're just not, or you know, you didn't put yourself on the fast track to healing. You were still kind of 
checking in what they're up to or trying to keep contact or doing things that are just going to postpone the healing. But I think that healing happens when it happens. And sometimes it does need a nudge. But uh, it sounds holistic, you know, that this this young man at some level knew this is not at the right point to completely fall apart. Yeah. And what was wild about that was that my siblings, who were all older than I, and some, my, my eldest brother's 20 years older than I, so they were, most of my siblings were adults, um, but we all, we all kind of processed it in a very similar way in that we never talked about it. It's like we all locked it away and we weren't, even with each other, we, it, we weren't talking about our parents, we weren't talking about anything we were going through around their death. So in, in some way, it made it easier for me just to do that too, because I didn't, I didn't have my siblings to talk through it with, and I wasn't going to talk through it with people outside of our family. But I, I agree with what, I mean, I, I've come to believe, and I think I believe this in part because it makes me feel better to believe it. And I think I believe it in part because it feels true, I guess, most of the time, is that I, I'm trusting more in the timing of things. You know, you're speaking to how we heal and the timing of healing and there aren't rules and there's no real timeline to it. And I just, I reflect on that more in my life. It's like I could, and have, I could beat myself up over all the ways in which I wish I had gotten to something sooner than I got to it. (laughs) But like, what good does that do? You know, and, or I can trust that I got to it in the right timing for me and that everything that it took for me to get to it even though it felt like it took a long time, all of that stuff is actually of value. It's actually serving my healing. It's actually stuff that I can utilize some way consciously or subconsciously in my life today right now. And so it's not for not, you know? Yeah. Your coming out story, the the thing I love about it is that you include coming out as an orphan, coming out as a somebody who went went through a very traumatic survival experience, you know, where you had to process this grief as well as coming out as a gay man yeah i um i'm bisexual and i I basically use that term mostly for solidarity and because heterosexuals wouldn't consider my actions (laughs) heterosexual you know so it's like i've i had to you know when i was a a younger man i found men aesthetically pleasing not necessarily sexually pleasing so Mm -hmm. it was never uh, this obvious sexual attraction. It wasn't until later in life in the right circumstances I got to go, you know, these things are fun too. And I get to find my own comfort zone with where that is. But behind every coming out story, this is why everybody should pay attention to coming out stories, is there's something that is universal, mm-hmm. which is expressing who you are deep down in the physical world. And that could be the quiet person who really feels like singing on a stage. And tell me about your coming out and how you how you did it essentially and how you walked into it and became as comfortable as you can. Yeah. Sure. With it, especially as an early uh, young man with a lot of shame about it. Yeah. I mean, I started to come out to my closest friends around 22, 23. It helped that I moved to San Francisco after mm-hmm. college, really. I mean, that was a that's a big part of my coming out story. So I, you know, I, I graduated in 93, was 22 years old, moved right to San Francisco. And it's, 
you know, in Michigan, it's very easy to stay in the closet. And this was a time with, you know, where the internet didn't exist, where it would have been very easy to find other gay people. Um, in San Francisco, it's very easy to feel like you're in community in the world of gay people because there are so many and they're everywhere. So I think I just started to recognize that those voices I've been trying to deny, that this is just a phase and all of that other nonsense that we hear about, is uh, that's not my truth, you know? And, and it is, it's funny because if I'm really, really being honest about my sexuality, I would say that I'm bisexual too, in as much as I've slept with women, it's been a long time, but I could imagine being attracted and sleeping with a woman again. Yeah, You know, why I call myself gay I, is, I guess, because I could never imagine not sleeping with a man again. Where it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I could go through my life and not have sex with a woman, I'd be just fine. But I, w- <laughs> I wouldn't be fine. And that's the distinction for me, I yeah. guess. But, it, you know, you get to a point where it's like, do you want to sit on your truth a, a second more? Like, how is it serving you? It's paralyzing. And I would be, and I was starting to to meet guys and going on dates with guys. And it became, and once you start, at, once you start like acting in accordance with who you are, it becomes much harder to hide who you are. And you become much less desirous of hiding who you are. It's like, I'm much more interested in going on dates with men. And so it's like, who cares if someone I know sees me out in a cafe, you know, on a date, those things become less important, the more you start to live your truth. And I think that's the great beauty of living our truth. It's like, it can be so difficult to be honest with who you are and to be, to stand on stage and sing if you're the introvert, even though your dream is to sing or whatever it is that's true for you. But once you start to do it, the payoff is uniquely beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it starts to outweigh the fear. It starts to outweigh all those things that keep you in your box and keep you in your closet, which is what happened for me. I started living in San Francisco. I started to come out to close friends. They received the information with surprise, but with support, you know, and it just, it was an avalanche, I'd say. Did you have a a ceremony of sorts where you really felt today, I'm out? No, no, I don't remember it as oh, such. Okay. It felt more gradual. Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah, there was no clear, like, mo- I can't remember anyway, a clear moment where I'm like, I am no longer denying this part of myself. I am forever forth a gay man. I have, uh, I've really fallen in love with creating ritual and creating c- ceremony. But that is actually a more recent thing and, you know, a strong declaration. Yeah. What's an example of that in your life? Where do you create ritual, would you say? So in May, when I was just emotionally kind of crippled, there's, I couldn't, you know, editing the podcast is a very emotional experience. Uh, we're reliving the conversation, which can go all kinds of places, you can imagine. Yeah. And I'm in tune with it. And often when I'm editing, the conversation is more pertinent to what I need than when I actually have the conversation. These conversations, which a few of them haven't come out and the recording was a year ago, they kind of tell me in a weird woo-woo kind of way, they kind of tell me when I need to edit it because that's the process. I built a studio. I built a studio that has since been called Square One Studio. And it's the home of Hello Humans now. It's the first dedicated creative space I've had, but I knew I could work with my hands and I knew I could get this done, even though I really, I couldn't even post on Instagram. And I have, I'm writing the ritual of 
christening it. You know, I've been working out of it for about a month, but there is going to be this ritual where it fully becomes, that is the the day it becomes Square One Studio. So I'm writing a script. I'm going to bring some friends over. Nice. We're going to have an official a ceremony. And um, I'm just somebody that can naturally skip over it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't remember to take photos of stuff. Yeah. I don't remember to always acknowledge great things or pat myself on the back. I had a piece come back from the New York Smithsonian, the, specifically the Cooper Hewitt Museum of Design. I had made this device for kids in wheelchairs and it had been there for five years and they sent it back. And that was when I first went, because I think I had grown, that's when I first went, that's really cool, Sam. Yeah. Like, that's really cool. You should find a place to put that on your internal resume. Yeah. Because there's some weird thing where I just kind of want to skip on to the next thing. And I just, I've fallen in love with, and not that I always do it, but I've fallen in love with trying to find novelty, trying to find ceremony, trying to find places where I can put my put my feet down and center and roar as I've come to call it from a past interview. I listened to that one. Yeah. yeah. I loved the roar at the beginning. That was awesome on Mount Tam. I am going to be doing that. Wow. I think every once in a while, I, I have a, a pretty specific question, which is, you know, I'm single and dating. And so there's this truth that at some point needs to come out. It's hard to decide when to come out that it's like, I've been through some traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. The way, you know, I don't think trauma gets used enough in our society. I think we've reserved it for the evilest things and the most brutal things that can happen to you. But I, I was listening to a lecture from a psychologist who said, you are constantly, whether you like it or not, building a map of what the world is, you know, what the world looks like and how people act in the world. And anytime you experience an event that shatters that map, Mm-hmm. that's trauma mm, sure. and you may you may need to do work that is post-trauma and it's hard to you know when you divulge hey i was orphaned at 14 i had to change my paternal figures to my oldest sister there's a sense of oh i'm burdening mm-hmm. this person you know like oh this person's having a good day i'm not going to burden them mm-hmm. with that or I'm on a date with somebody and they're genuinely curious about who I am, where I came from, but I don't want to bring the date down. How have you come to A, allow yourself to speak about these things and also to, you know, speak about it in a way where you feel, yeah, I guess, okay speaking about it when, and I guess finding when it's safe. I think a lot of that is energy. You know, I think in terms of if I'm talking with someone who doesn't know my story the energy with which I communicate my story is going to impact the response, you know, more times than not. So if I'm, I'm bringing up my parents from a space of like devastation, you know what I mean? That's going to, that's going to create a scenario that's going to be very different if I'm communicating it from a place of like, okayness, like I'm just, this is my story. And yes, this was really, really difficult. And right now in this moment, you know, I'm okay. I'm simply sharing this with you. You know, you 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 spoke to intuition when we first started talking and the power of intuition. And I think like on dates or in communications with new people, if we can trust our intuition around like, is this the right time 
to be sharing this? Is this a person who can handle this information? Maybe listen to how we're feeling inside about those things as well. And also trust that if we're sharing something that's important, that is a part of who we are and something that we really want to share and that other person is not able to receive it, there's information in that too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, no matter what you tell me about your life, I'm going to, I am going to apply my story to it in some way. So I am going to receive the information you're, you're communicating to me through my lens and respond in whatever way I respond. And that's what we're all doing with each other. You know, I'm a big fan of vulnerability. I'm a big fan of the word and of the practice. And yet I think it's, and, and I talk about that a lot in my work, the, the importance of vulnerability and what that does for us and the healing that it creates for us when we're able to show up authentically, vulnerably with our hearts and share the truth of what we're experiencing or the truth of what we've experienced. And at the same time, you might show up for someone vulnerably and they shit on you, you know, and they, <laughs> and they judge you. Like you open your heart and say this and like, you're so fucked up, you know, like, why would you ever do that? Why would you ever make that choice? So I think that as powerful as vulnerability is, I think Brene Brown says, not everybody is entitled to your vulnerability or some version of that. Not everybody is entitled to your truth. I think that's where intuition, intuition comes in, yeah. you know, and we'll be right sometimes with our intuition and we'll be wrong sometimes, as you said. And it's like, you learn from those things. You internalize those things. I'm paying way more attention to my body than I've ever paid attention to. And Martha Beck, who's this amazing writer, teacher, Names come up, come up a bunch. Yeah, I should you check her out. And yeah. she's also like the goofiest human alive, which it makes her. <laughs> she's got two or three postdoctor degrees from Harvard, and is also the mo like one of the most love centered beings. I don't know her personally, but following her work, and I went to one of her workshops. So she says, and I'm going to butcher these numbers, but she essentially says that our brain has maybe four million neurotransmitters and our body has like 25 million, let's say. Again, the numbers are wrong, but the point is what the point she's making is that our bodies are so sensitive and yet we're conditioned to listen only to our minds. We're conditioned to listen only to the information that we're getting through our brain and our mind instead of paying attention to our body's feeling moments. And, and it's like when you walk into the room and you're like, ah, you know, you're, you're, you feel something is off. That's not mental. That's your body tuning into what's happening. And our bodies are constantly tuning in. And so I'm making a practice more often than I ever have. And it's serving me of like, how's my body responding? If I think about to making this choice in my life or making this choice in my career, get out of my head for a second and what happens with my body. And if my body is like folding over into this crippled posture, it's probably not the right choice, you know? Whereas if my body is like lifting and opening, it's like there's something to listen to there. Mm -hmm. You know, that we, we have to, I believe, or you don't have to do anything, but I'm trying to listen to everything more so. Get information from all of the, the spirit center, the mental center, the, the body, the somatic center. There's information coming at us in all ways, you know? And, and it's like, we've got to get out of our minds more. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is not woo woo either. I remember, uh, it feels like s sort of recent. I think within the last decade, I remember reading a published journal that they found neurons in your stomach, and now it's called the gut brain axis. For anybody who wants to go down that Google hole, they're calling it the gut brain axis because it really was like, listen, there is a direct connection. You like pay attention to what's going on in your stomach. Yeah, 
And not only, you know, now it's like, I know when I'm putting food in my stomach, it's going to the brain. Like there's signals going on, but also like that old follow your gut, follow your heart. Yeah. Not only was that just a metaphor, like there's a real element to that. There's a real truth to that. Absolutely. It's wild. Note to self, this episode is called Stand on Your Truth. Uh, (laughs) I like that. This is one thing I, when I was listening to one of the interviews that you did, was your moment of realizing that you didn't want to perpetuate this idea of that you could choose your feelings or that, you know, like I, for people like me who just like loved the secret when it came out, like it was such a, it was such a cool idea, but there's an element to that. I think there's, you know, there's good in, in it. And that's why so many people were drawn to it. Uh, there's like things that are true, maybe not in the exact way it was showcased, but there was a damaging element to a lot of us who say have uh, life-threatening depression where that's not your fault. You know, just like I can be exercising, eating well, doing well, and still have this big crash. And there's a few for anyone listening or thinking about reaching out to being on the show. There's a few editorial choices we've made of just people to not showcase. And that's anyone who says they have the solution to what's going on in your life. Now you can say, I have a solution. That's a subtle difference. I have a solution that could work. Mm -hmm. That's a very subtle difference than I can cure you. And anybody that says, master your thoughts, you know, anybody with that kind of message, not, you know, I still follow some people on Instagram and still pull information that I use, but I will not showcase them on our platform, on our community, because of the possibility that somebody says, oh, I must be, this must be a moral failing of mine, Mm -hmm. how I feel. And also anybody that reposts people's work without crediting the original author. So that's it, you know, I've lost a lot of cool people I really wanted to get in contact with and really wanted to show because, you know, that- Is there reposting people's work without- Yeah, one of them was, was, you know, reposting not only people's work, somebody I know, you know, a writer that I know. And it's crazy so, making. It's crazy. And it's so easy. But yeah, so that I've just decided for now that is a, a complete non-starter. How'd you come to to that? What taught you that lesson that, you know, like all feelings are temporary. They come and go. Soak up the good. Figure out strategies during the bad. You know, yeah. that, you know, I don't think like the bad is bad. I don't actually believe in bad. But, you know, there are. There, states that are harder than others. Yeah. And how'd you come to this, what I think is a graceful stance on it, that you don't get to choose your feelings. You don't get to, you know, choose your emotions. You can obviously do things that have an effect on them, but that you're also along for some ride. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing is I got tired of feeling like shit about not being happy. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like, you're being told or you're you're internalizing this message that we can choose happiness, that it's a choice. And so when I feel like shit, I'm also judging myself for being, being a person who's been on a conscious spiritual path for all these years, and I'm still not able to make this choice and be happy, like the messages and the memes and the teachers say. And, you know, I think I just woke up at some point and realized, one, that our feelings are fleeting and that if you're heart is broken, you're struggling in some way, you lose a loved one, nothing in the world is going to create some power within you that you can just decide to scream, I choose happiness, and then you'll suddenly be happy. 
I think it was also, it's recognizing there are so many rules. You know, I've been in this world of ever since my 20s, I feel like I've been on a conscious spiritual path, which just for me means I've been paying attention to who I am in the world and trying to be loving and paying attention to when I'm being an asshole and trying to get myself back on the love train and and within it all recognizing that I'm just a human being and this is all all human beings are feeling. So I got sick of the rules around what it means to be a proper spiritual person and what it means to be a good person and what it, you know what I'm saying what it means to be a wise person. I've by the way also totally let go of the jonesing for enlightenment and that was a, a really freeing thing to let go of because it created a lot of pain in my life. I didn't want to say anything. I don't believe in the word. Really. No, I'm, it's, I'm very skeptical of people that use language about no, attaining something. God, yeah. when I finally let go of that, I can't tell you the freedom it created <laughs> in my life because so much of my life was, it was all about attaining enlightenment. That's all I cared about. And then I realized all the choices I'm making in my life, like I want to be more loving and more compassionate. And, and I was doing it all because of this idea of enlightenment. It's like, that's how I'm choosing to live anyway. And I don't have the pressure of trying to become enlightened, whatever that means and however that looks. With, with feelings, it just, it was paying attention and realizing like I'm trying to abide by these rules that are being set around how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to feel when in fact we have no control over our feelings. I think the distinction I would make that I think is really important to make, because you can say you can't choose happiness and just leave it there. And it's like this, dun, dun, dun. you know, it's, it's kind of this grim thing to say, you know, and, and what I've come to, to realize is it's not about choosing happiness. It's about making choices that stand to create more peace or joy or happiness in my life based on my experiences. So an example I've often used is like, I like to play tennis. I can choose to play tennis. That's very, and knowing that by choosing to play tennis, I'm likely to inspire some joy in my life. That's very different than choosing happiness. You know, I could also choose to play tennis and it could be miserable and I could play like shit and it could be an unhappy experience. But the more consciousness we put into the choices we make, I think the more we serve ourselves. And if we did nothing else in our lives, if you did nothing else but paid attention to the choices you were making and make more choices that stand to lead to more peace and happiness or meaning in your life and fewer choices that deplete you and take away from the prospect of joy. If we did nothing else but that, I think we would change our lives profoundly. Certainly. And your unhappy self can really, you know, I use the word depressed because that's just the, t the form it takes and the word that feels right. My depressed self can really give gifts to my happy self. Totally. And I've had really hard bouts of depression where I kept eating well and I kept going to the gym. And when I came out of it, I didn't get the payoff in the depression. When I came out of it, I was so thankful to that Sam. Yeah. I was so thankful. I didn't do that this time around. And it's kind of like, well, you know, you certainly, you gave yourself a little gut this time around, Sammy, you know, but I've had times where I come out of it and I just go, I can't believe you did that for me, Sam. Yeah. You know, talking to my, yeah. that, that person in that place, like yeah. what a great guy yeah, to give me the gift of, of coming back into a healthy body. So I'm curious with this time, if you feel like talking about this, coming out of what you've been you were you've been going through this time the depression you've been going through did you feel like it was in part you came to the other side because of conscious actions you were taking or that you came to the other side just because we always ultimately come to the other side of everything we're going through or a mix of both those things yeah i think it's it's three parts so 
before this bout, I had really been trying to manage it with like good food and diet and exercise and it can do it, you know, uh, in a, in, to a degree. So I can be feeling a little funky, go do some high intense cardio, get sweating, go eat some deliciously healthy food and pull myself out of it sometimes. There's some situational stuff. My dad died this year. My mom got married. Both of those were very, both were extreme ends to chapters of my life. You know, uh, my mom now has a partner, you know, and it was a real, I had, that was the real moment where it's like, oh, this is real. My mom has a partner. We're not going to need, you know, she's not going to need me in the same way as in her life because yeah. she's having a blast with her partner. Yeah. And my my father passed. We're never going to have the hallmark coming together and being father and son and talking weekly. We like had moments of coming close, but it just wasn't um, something that ever happened. And that with the constant kind of undertone of this program's a failure, this thing's a failure, you know, and it just hit me and it felt like it was like that debilitating depression, which is different from the the kind of depression that I can get myself to the gym. It was like, I was glued to the couch until I realized I might not be able to post on Instagram and you know, inspire creativity or inspire something great. And I might not be able to post the podcast and get that message to the one or two people who need to hear that message. Um, which is the goal for every episode because I'm just not in a place to be like, yeah, we did a million downloads on that episode. You know, it's thousands, but roughly the purpose of that is that of the thousands, one, two, you know, maybe 10 if we're lucky, yeah. are getting exactly what they needed. Some of them are gracious enough to let me know. And that's that goes in a permanent folder. But really, I have always, you know, I was lucky enough that when I first got sober, after about two years of sobriety, which I thought was going to fix everything, fixed a lot, but I realized, oh, I still have some stuff. Mm -hmm. And maybe my using was an attempt to manage some of the stuff going on, these fear, anxiety, depression, that kind of stuff. And so I was lucky enough to do the deal of finding a medication that can help which is, you know, for anyone out there, it's a, it's a long process. You have to try a bunch of stuff that doesn't work. It takes, it's not instant. You have to wait for it to kick in. And so I've always kept the medication nearby. And I finally got to a place where I was in so much pain that I just said, fuck it. You know, I have some weird um, shame where some part of me wants to be natural oh natural you sure. know and like ready for the apocalypse where the the prepper team will accept me because you know i watched some prepper shows where like the question was like do you need glasses are you on medication because clearly you won't survive the apocalypse yeah <laughs> but i also just want to be doing it through exercise and meditation and this and that and so there's a acceptance where it's like man this medication helps why aren't you doing it yeah and so I did it. And now fucking hopefully, Sam, at least give yourself a, a long chapter. I would like to go a year without falling apart. I don't know if that's optimistic. I don't know if I'm just somebody who has to fall apart in uh, some kind of cycle, if that's just a part of my life cycle, you know, is these constant kind of growing, falling, growing, falling. But once I'm on it, once I got the relief three weeks down the road, now it's kind of like, let's let's give yourself a big stretch before you get that that bright idea yeah. again. And so 
it's like a you know it's like the rest of life there's that's why I don't believe in telling the answers. Like it's yeah. so complicated it's and so complicated. The second I got more energy or more will to s- step into a life that I really want for myself, which is health and you know taking care of this body that is basically willing to to carry me around everywhere, and uh, you know my hands will draw for me, my feet will walk for me, and I just want to give back to that sense, but. It's such a multi-pronged approach and there's so much, you know, I don't think I've, I didn't have that big grief about my dad yet. I had like sadness and I had like an understanding that things were different now, but you know, I can't force it. Yeah. And I also know that this is going to be a a lifelong part of my healing Yeah, and a lifelong part of this thing that happened is now going to be something that is part of the mix. I don't think it's, a, again, a good or bad thing. I think it's something that happened and something that I get to draw my own meaning from and get to my own kind of healing from. And there's already, you know, I don't think any, I don't think everything needs to be turned into a teaching moment. I agree. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like sometimes chaotic bad shit just happens. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I've seen that in kind of, uh, toxically optimistic and toxically kind of seeker communities mm-hmm. is they're like, what's the message? What could you have done differently? What are you doing wrong? What are you not thinking right? And if you're uh, pitching that to somebody who's say been raped, mm-hmm. like shame on you, mm-hmm. you know, shame on you. That person didn't invite that in. And that person actually doesn't need to learn a goddamn thing from that. Yeah. If that's not what's true. Yeah. That can just be something that, happened and sometimes it is a a calling and sometimes it is a qualification to then help bring others into healing but it doesn't have to be yeah i agree and so i'm i'm waiting to see what all this means i i know one thing that has happened is i have deep dove into a relationship with my younger self okay with you know a nine ten year old self who really was excited to be this age more so than I am often at this age, was really excited what I was going to do, really believed I was capable of doing anything. And even if some of it was exaggerated, like I really thought, oh, you could solve cancer if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. You could build a spaceship if you wanted to. And those might not be objectively true, but that belief is something I don't want to lose touch with and I want to reconnect with. Because I think even if you overshoot your belief, it's going to be better than never having believed and that connection to younger Sam is some of the deepest work I've ever done. Yeah. And so I was lucky that some of these events have led to that. Some of these events have just been awful chaos for now, you know, and um, it's a, it's a mixed complex bag like everything else. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. With, Love is such a broad word. I know people that are working in love in all different kinds of shapes and form. What are your teachings about love? What do you like if you meet with people for an hour who have, for whatever reason, decided that they want to hear you for an hour? Which anytime I've spoken, I've just been like amazed, like, wow, this is wild. What do you want to give them in terms of a couple more tools or in terms of? a couple thoughts to chew on or what are your big high level teachings? 
high level, yeah. the pressure. No, low no, level. I know. Yeah. Any level. Any low level. level. Excuse me. Roach-like teachings. Yeah. I mean, essentially, it's that what I believe about love and when I speak about love, I'm just, I'm talking about energy, the energy of love. What what I see is the, like, what's vibrating beneath all of the insanity of this planet. When you peel away all of the conditioning and all of the bullshit and all of the violence and anger, you get to love, you know, that's what's left. Really what I believe is what's left is just stillness and love is like this layer on top of that. But, but love is essentially what's left. And that love informs all of the things that matter the most in our lives. So things like kindness and compassion and empathy and forgiveness, those are all reflections of love in our life. And I believe that we all intuitively know that when we're operating from that energy, when we're giving or receiving love, we feel the best. We know this, which is why it feels so insane when you look at the world, because it's it's filled with billions of people who understand intuitively that love is the answer. And yet we create all of these justifications to hate and to operate outside of that energy. So one thing I like to communicate is that, you know, when I'm feeling, I'm a sensitive soul for sure. And I'd say when I feel most paralyzed, it's by the state of the world. You know, when I feel, when I get most down, it's looking around and feeling like I can't take this planet. It's too dark. It's too ugly. It's too disgusting. And when I feel that way, it's because when I feel that hopelessness, it's because I feel like there's nothing I can do to create any change within it. And I recognize there's nothing I can do to, to, to create anything that's going to affect whether we go to war with Iran or North Korea or any of that stuff. But when I am moving through my life and interacting with people from a place of kindness and empathy and compassion, I am impacting people in a powerful way. I've gotten the, I, I guess, the privilege of seeing it on a broader scale because I have a larger social media community. So I get a lot of people writing me saying, thank you so much for the work you're doing, but you don't have to have a lot of people following you on social media. If you just go out into your life and, and if you reflect on how you've been touched by someone's kindness, how that can change the entire trajectory of your day, then we realize how powerful our love is. And then if you go out into the world and you're kind to a stranger or you're, 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 you know, you, you take the time to send a note, a text to a friend that you haven't been in touch with for a while, you feel in those moments, the power of that, that for me is just all love in action. And then the other thing, another thing I would say about love is that one of my favorite quotes is from the Buddha. He said, if you truly loved yourself, you could never hurt another. And that for me is the essence of love. And that's why a lot of the work I'm I'm drawn to doing now, it's really rooted in self-love and really reminding people that when we are so connected to love of self, all we have to offer in return is love of others. And this is how I believe we heal the world. It's not that there's not great value in anger. I think there's amazing value in anger to create change, but anger doesn't create healing. Only love does that. Anger alone is just, it's, it's going to get you to say the things that you need to say and the other person's going to say the things that they needed to say. Anger brings that out. But if all you're doing then is screaming the things that you've been sitting on and stewing with, like, where is the healing in that, right? That's when we can bring empathy and compassion and all the things that love invites. I really don't want to talk about love in a woo-woo way because I think it's really oftentimes the most courageous choice we can make in our lives. If someone's screaming at you or in your face condemning you, how easy is it to start screaming back or be like, fuck you? You know what I mean? That's like, that's super easy. 
the the challenging choice is like to go to love, to be present and stay in that energy and recognize another person's humanity, even if they're not able to do so with you. For me, that's like, that's how we heal the world. And it starts with ourselves. I mean, you, we all have that, the mind, the self-abusive mind that is constantly telling us we're worthless and ugly and not enough and stupid and a failure and all of these other voices, all of the other communications every single day that my mind is telling me. And I used to think that there was a real silliness with affirmations that to tell yourself you're beautiful as you are, if your mind is telling you you're an ugly monster, it just seemed like bullshit. Like, this is not what I'm believing. Why would I say it to myself? And then what I started to realize is all the things that I'm believing in my mind are lies. I am choosing to believe the lies of my mind over the truth of my heart, which is that I am enough and I am worthy. That is a truth. So why wouldn't I put energy into believing those truths about myself. And why wouldn't I also consciously choose not to go to war with my mind, but to say to my mind, I don't believe you. Why wouldn't I be challenging my mind and all those self-abusive thoughts? I've made a practice more than ever of not believing my thoughts, and it has helped me as much as anything else in my life. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, this is not true. Thoughts are different than intuition. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And not as, again, not to go to war. If we go to war with our minds, that is a losing battle. But there's great power in challenging and in disbelieving. So for me, love, if we can start with self-love... And how do we start with self-love? We pay attention to how we're talking to ourselves. We pay attention to the thoughts we're thinking about ourselves. And the moment we have awareness that what we're offering ourselves is self-abuse and is toxic and is belligerent, the moment we have that awareness, we can offer ourselves something different. We can remind ourselves that we are enough, that we are worthy, that we are beautiful, that we are human, that we are okay right? And the more often we do that, the more practiced at it we become. And th this is how I've changed my life. Like I still get really depressed. I still beat myself up, but I love myself more than I've ever loved myself in my life. And it serves even my darkest moments because even when I'm dark, there's still that voice that's like, you are human. <laughs> this is okay. You are worthy. Even when I'm telling myself I'm unworthy, there's still that whisper of, you're worthy. <laughs> you know, don't believe it. And this makes a difference. It makes a difference how we show up in the mirror in the morning. You know, the I, I'm in the mirror in the morning and the first thing that I usually look at is my stomach and it's usually bigger than I want. And I start judging myself immediately. The moment we have awareness that that's what we're doing, what what are what's the other communication that we can offer ourselves in the mirror? How can we affirm ourselves? How can we love ourselves? How can we show up for ourselves the way we show up for the people in our lives that we love the most, who when they're hurting and they're telling themselves they're ugly, we're there to say, that's bullshit. You're beautiful. I love you. Yeah. You know, I love the kind of the balance you talked about in terms of the giving and receiving, because I've had moments where it's very easy for me to champion for other people and champion yeah. love and bring love in other people's lives. But when other people try to give it to me, I'm a bad reception receptor, you know, and I kind of shut them off or I divert or I avoid in some way. And there's a beautiful amount of, of work that can be done if you catch yourself doing that. Somebody says like, take the compliment. Mm -hmm. That's a good, you know, yeah. that's some good feedback. Like, yeah. oh, why am I not? You know, why am I making a joke out of this? Yeah. But I also, this is something I think I'm going to highlight on it because it's been very front center in my life. I see a lot of people 
who are mindful, beautiful, spiritual people, and they talk about manifesting and they talk about bringing into the world, and a lot of it has to do with them. Mm. What are they manifesting? You know, oh, I'm really manifesting this new apartment. I'm really manifesting my perfect job. This and that has a lot to do with you. And what I've noticed is when the quote unquote universe is giving me beautiful things or things that I've been really hoping for, when it's giving me the office that, you know, Square One Studio, what's true is really the agents of the universe, which is all of us. Mm-hmm. We're all the hands. You know, we're all the hands of that force made that possible. Mm -hmm. People made that possible. Somebody went out of the way to call me and say, I have an office and I'm going to, I'll give it to you at something you can afford and I will have a, you can bring interns with you and I won't charge you extra for that. And, you know, when we talk about magic and manifesting, I don't think it's about burning the right kind of sage or worshiping the right kind of crystals. I think it's about how do you make magic? Yeah. And you can make magic pretty quickly. You can r- reach out to an artist friend that you know continues to make art even though they're not getting the outside payoff. And you can just text them. I believe in you. Yeah, That can be magic. You can get a coffee and you can just surprise them with a 100% tip. Yeah. That's five bucks, you know, whatever it is. And I've seen some reactions. You don't always get it. And, you know, sometimes they're, they have their back turned while you do it. So you're like, damn, damn it. <laughs> but I've seen people that looked like, I know at least there was five seconds of change mm-hmm. that I I help facilitate. You can be making lunch, and if you're you know if you're in an urban area, you can just make a second one. Yeah, just make a second one one and see if you if you pass anybody that looks like they need a lunch. Yeah, and there is a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of opportunities that I want to be positioned for of you to be the universe for someone and for you to be the manifester of someone else's quote unquote, you know, manifesting. And you can be the one to help bring that into reality. I had somebody uh, this year who either I briefly mentioned it, but my dog got sick and I wasn't properly prepared for taxes. And somebody just said, I'm unexpectedly flush with cash right now. I want to pay your vet bill. You know, I want to help with taxes. And here we are, you know, we're, yeah. we're here another month in operation. Yeah. You know, the IRS isn't chasing me and I, I don't have to make payments towards a vet bill that I couldn't afford. Somebody, not mystically, yeah. somebody physically became the universe in that moment. Yeah. Through love, through yeah. understanding. Complete. That's all love in action for yeah. me, you know, and it's powerful. Yeah. I want to be that person who's receptive, you know, when I'm in a a place or when I have time or money, whenever that is, it could be tomorrow. I want to be that person that shows up like that. Like that person became a teacher for me. You've been very generous with your time. I don't know. I'm thrilled to be here. Are you kidding? This is, and I, there's a couple of things. Do you have a little bit more time? Yeah. You know, let's just talk about it. Yeah. We've been on opposite sides of the equation where I was a, crazy meth head just not only destroying my own life but just leaving path of wreckage in everybody who cared about me's life because they were kind of forced to also 
go through this stuff. And you had a brother who really went on a tear and ended up with him dying, which is, I'm in recovery. That happens a lot and it happens to great people. And I would love to, I would love for you to, to share your experience of, of what that was like. Cause that's, especially these days, that's pretty common Yeah, to know somebody and to, lo- and to love somebody who is completely unable to love you back or love themselves. Yeah. It's what it was like is it's separated into kind of like being a kid and being an adult with my brother. I mean, because he was 18 years my senior and as far as anyone can figure out, he started using at 18. I don't know if that's when he got into heroin, but it's it's when the drug cycle started. So my whole life of knowing him was through the lens of him being addicted to drugs and especially heroin. So it wasn't something as a kid, it was, I, I recognized my brother was a very loving person, very easy to love, you know, big, 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 big heart. And I also recognized that he was creating a lot of trauma in our family and hiding all the money if he would come by for a visit and locking everything up and just being on guard all the time if he was around. And then when he wasn't around, understanding that he was in like a smack house somewhere or, you know, or in jail and, you know, like knowing that if we're not seeing him, it means he's with his drug. And if we are seeing him, it means there's a small window where maybe he's trying to get clean. But, you know, so living with the tension of that all the time. And I think that I never understood it. I couldn't make sense of it as a kid. I was just like, why doesn't he just quit? (laughs) Like, why is he creating so much horror and trauma in our family's life? How could he be so selfish? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I also just viewed him as an addict. That was just, I, I, I didn't, I, he was an addict before he was my brother. You know what I mean? That was mm. the lens through which I viewed him. And as an adult, I reflect on my brother very differently. One, I don't view people as addicts first and foremost at all. And I don't carry judgment around addiction the way that I grew up carrying judgment around addiction. And also I grew up with a father who was a gambling addict, which honestly created more trauma than my brother in growing up. So I think that if anything, I just feel much, I I feel much more compassion for people who are struggling with addiction than I've ever felt in my life. And in part now, because I grew up with a brother who was never able to get to the other side of his. And I think when I was younger, after, when I, when I got into college, I came to have this different understanding of addiction that it is a disease and it is absolutely beyond the person's control. And I started to have more compassion and empathy for my brother. And I started to realize that there's nothing he can do to get over it. That's what I started to believe in my early 20s. And then I came to a new understanding, which is that there's a person is never without hope to get over whatever they're experiencing. You know, however you view addiction, if you believe absolutely that addiction is a disease 100% of the time for all people, that still doesn't mean that a person can't recover from it. I mean, the whole the whole thing around sobriety is that it's a choice. You know, that people are, it's a choice that people are making every minute of every day. You know, and I believe, and I'm always hopeful that no matter how dire, I don't know how dire your situation was. It sounds like it was pretty dire. Dire. Yeah. yeah. And look at you now. Right. You know what I mean? It's just like, there are too many examples. There are countless examples of people who should be dead, who are living. 
yeah. and, and thriving in their own way, however that looks, for me to ever write off somebody, no matter how addicted to whatever it is they're addicted to they are. You know, and that's the case for me around everything in life at this point, is it's like, I'm not somebody who believes that we're all giving ourselves whatever we're, I absolutely believe that people can bring about, bring upon cancer on themselves. And I absolutely believe that not everybody's giving themselves cancer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like two, two year olds are not like somehow giving themselves cancer. Right. You know what I mean? I believe both those things are possible. Our habits affect our life and also shit happens. But what I, what I've come to believe 100% is it's like anything is possible. If you're still breathing, there's this incredible story. Did I answer around my brother or not? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. There's this incredible story, um, a woman named Anita Morjani. Have you heard of her? Are you familiar with her? She has a book called Dying to Be Me. And she was late stage terminal cancer, golf ball sized tumors all over her body and was in the final minutes of her. She, she went into the coma. The doctor said, this is it. Say goodbye. And she had a near-death experience in her coma. And she was communicated to from some divine source that she had lived her entire life in a state of fear. And it was because she had made choices her entire life from a place of fear that this cancer was happening in her body. And again, I want to say that I don't believe everybody creates the cancer in their body. This was her experience. And what she came to understand in that experience was that if she re-entered her body she could heal herself if she started to choose love. And she re-entered her body and woke up and said to the doctor, I'm going to be okay. And the doctor's like, honey, no, you're not, you know, like, but, and she, within five weeks, her tumors had disappeared. And so I, he I hear a story like that and her story isn't unique. That's what's so amazing about this story is that we hear all of these different stories about people who were supposed to die, who somehow miraculously like their cancer disappeared or their whatever it was they were dealing with somehow left their body. And I hear these stories one after the next. And I'm like, how can we ever give up hope on anything? How can we ever give up hope on anything when anything is possible? Yeah. And, and for me, that's when I look at the world and I'm just like, this world is so disgusting. It's so dark, but I'm like, gay marriage is legal nationally. Do you know what I mean? That, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Same yeah. sex marriage. Like that is nothing I ever imagined would happen. It's like, how can we ever give up on anything? There's always hope. Yeah. I don't think hope's wasted even if it doesn't come to fruition. No, no. Addicts are tricky, you know, and they can, they're heartbreakers. And oh, when, sure. when they're under the influence, they are really not who I would call, you know, for lack of a better word, who their spirit is. Mm -hmm. And people ask me about it all the time. You know, parents ask me about their children or siblings ask about, you know, their struggling sibling. And the thing I just want to leave with anybody connecting with this is that it's a mess. And you have people that go in and out, in and out, in and out, seem hopeless. They can't string together a week. They finally get it. You have people that, you know, get sober, get the whole life and decide to go out and decide to wreck themselves again you have people that never even draw another sober breath from when they were a teenager and there's a couple of things one your experience is is different because you never got to to see you know connect with who his soul was but you know for parents i always say when they reach out i always say that person that he or she was is still a moment that you can appreciate that wonderful child, that sweet, sensitive child, 
connect back with that. Mm. And it's okay to draw boundaries. You know, I don't think you should be held hostage by by addicts. But the reality is, is that we're not in a Disney movie. Yeah. And this could end poorly. And as uh, Frank Ostaseski, who started the Zen Hospice, said, we have some weird obsession with everybody needing a good death. Mm. And I, I've really come to adopt that, like, a good, you know, as we would call it, a good death is... Um, you know, a bad death is not a sign of a wasted life. Mm. And you know, life's, life's a meth, mess, and some of us only get to live beautifully for 17 years or whatever your brother got. And hopefully they impacted somebody, you know, or got to create a beautiful mosaic in somebody's experience. But Absolutely. I like to end this way which is if I could hand you a phone right now mm. and you could talk to you when you most needed to hear from your current self mm. or uh, a young person or just a person who, I like to frame it as, as a dialogue with yourself. If, you could, if I could give you the phone and on the phone is you at your most vulnerable, at your most confused, at your most shameful, and you could tell them a brief message about what you'd want them to know to be true with the person that you, you know, from the perspective of the person you're going to become. Yeah. What is the message you would like to leave that person with until they became who you are today? Yeah. It's so funny. I know you asked this question too. And I'm like, <laughs> but, you know, I feel a couple things. One thing I would want to want this person to know, and I'm going, you know, the place I'm going to right now is when I was around 22 and crying for those days in the room and feeling like I wasn't going to be able to handle the grief of losing my parents. And also at the same time coming to terms with sexuality is just to, to let that version of myself know that. that Talk it, directly to, to him if you can. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't been, uh, I haven't made people do that, but I'm going to try. Okay. All right. Just to say, Scott, you are so much stronger than you can even begin to imagine at this point in your life and that your truth, the truth that you have been working to hide and the shame you feel around it, that very truth is gonna open you up to so many incredible connections and possibilities. And the sooner you get to that truth and trust in it and verbalize it, the freer you will become. And I love you. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Sam. Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at hellohumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is hellohumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art in the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description, and it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution. So our patrons are our financial 
backbone of this product. That's how we managed to do this ad-free. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash howtohuman. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash howtohuman. This is the How to Human podcast, a production of hellohumans.co. Until next time, have a great day.